So it's just about 4.30. So I can invite the stragglers to come in quickly and get settled. And we can begin the, uh, the session. Um, we were asked a few days ago to try to be fairly prompt with our finishing time, which is 5.30. So um, we'll try and keep that in mind. And um, I feel a bit awkward with talking to people behind me. I hope, I hope you understand. <laughs> uh, it's just the way that things have been arranged. Um, I think there's, there's a microphone or two that people can use for their questions. Um, and if they could also just raise their hand, because the sound comes from somewhere else. It doesn't come from you. It comes from somewhere else. And that can be confusing. So if you raise your hand when you ask the question, that would be helpful. Good afternoon, Jen. Um, yes. Uh, I have a question about uh, fear and anxiety that Ajahn Suchita was talking yesterday uh, because the world is uncertain and we all, always have this uh, feeling that we have some protection or safety. And uh, um, may I ask how to work with this feeling? If, for example, I'm sitting and uh, feel this fear in my stomach. And uh, should I just continue on anxiety and wait till it's gone? Or should I uh, think about something specific, uh, about refuge or something? So uh, is it uh, <coughs> just a feeling that will come and go? Or should I work with it somehow? Thank you. I think yes to all of that, probably. Uh, it's certainly a feeling that will come and go. Um, and if it arises in meditation, um, then there are different things that you can you can do. Um, and um, I would encourage you to experiment. Don't feel that there's just one way of dealing with it. Um, personally, I find that the breath is very helpful for calming any kind of agitated state. Um, I use the in-breath to arouse energy. So if I'm feeling dull and sleepy, then I focus on the in-breath just to energize the system. And if I have a sense of agitation um, or grief or confusion or some kind of um, uh, aroused state, then I focus on the out-breath. Just, ah. It's a very helpful way of, of touching the earth, I find, just using the out-breath as a way of settling uh, into your body. Um, with, with fear and anxiety, there's often a, a mental component, so there's often a lot of thinking going along with it. And it can be helpful, like if you're in meditation, is just to remind yourself that you're here at Amarawati, you're in a safe place. You're among good people, and um, there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, it's still, it's not necessarily going to stop the fear altogether, because fear is not always, very often, not based on anything rational. You know, it can be a kind of programming from from long ago, um, but that can that can help to settle to some extent. Um, and otherwise, just, just being with it in a very patient, 
in a very kind way. So not, I shouldn't be afraid, um, or blaming somebody for, for making you feel frightened of them, but more a sense of, it's all right. Bringing enormous, I, I always feel that kindness towards oneself is a very helpful practice, a very helpful thing to develop. Um, so sort of learning how to talk to yourself in a way that uh, can bring a sense of calm, a sense of settledness, a sense of perspective. Um, going for refuge is also very helpful. You, you mentioned that as well. And uh, sometimes if I'm afraid, um, I recollect the refuges. I even re recite them to myself internally, on namotasa. And I use these as a way also of just settling, of calming um, the mind in the present moment. Because fear is usually about what might happen. It's about something in the future. And really the best preparation for something difficult in the future is to be present. So if you're <laughs> present in a situation of danger, then the chances of, are that you're going to be able to respond in a, in a very skillful, very helpful way. Whereas if you get lost in fear, uh, sometimes that's not always so helpful. Um, especially the kind of mental kind of fear. There's a kind of bodily fear that can actually bring about a very um, surprising reaction sometimes. And often, uh, you know, I've heard stories of, of um, you know, people in situations of great danger suddenly doing something without any thought at all, and it's the right thing. Uh, but in terms of the kind of fear and anxiety that you're talking about, uh, my sense is to be with the body, calm, settle, reassure yourself, using the refuges and the precepts and kindness. Those would be the ingredients that I would put into the mix for such a situation. Thank you very much. And uh, refuges is like a mantra, or there is some special uh, thoughts I should think about? Or well, I I just say Buddhang Saranangat Chami, Dhammang Saranangat Chami, Sangang Saranangat Chami. Sometimes just those words. Sometimes actually reflecting on what they mean, you know, as a as a recollection to the Buddha. It it reminds you um, to attend, to look at what's really going on, and to see that the thoughts in the mind are just creations of the mind, but there is a a reality that you can tune into here and now, which is the Dhamma, which is the truth. And then the Sangha, which is the aspiration to live in accordance with that truth, with um, integrity, with care, so that any response to a situation of danger is, is one that is um, kind of responsible, careful, as far as possible. Thank you. Yes? Hello. Um, I was just wondering if you could... Um, clear up what the Buddha meant by conquer drowsiness. Conquer drowsiness? Um, because oh. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, I've been trying for quite a while to kind of sleep less and less and, and uh, kind of experiment with how much food I eat and stuff to stop drowsiness from uh, arising so regularly. Um, but obviously that drowsiness is always going to come up if you're you are like physically tired, so I was just kind of confused exactly as to what what this is, what the Buddha is referring to. Like, is it is it just to conquer it, like 
for the most part or not giving rise to drowsiness at all? I'll talk, I'll, I'll say some things and I'm imagining that everybody will have a different answer to this question. It's a very um, common difficulty for people. It's one that I've worked with a lot uh, in my practice. Um, and it's extremely subtle. Um, as I think it was Ajahn Sajito mentioning that often, or maybe it was Ajahn Punadamo mentioning that often there's an element of negativity there. So sometimes we can pick up the words of the Buddha in, a, in an unfortunate way, the idea of conquering drowsiness. We feel we've got something we've got to, like an adversary, something we've got to uh, defeat. And um, that can be a helpful approach. Um, I also think it's quite helpful to try to understand, um, which is... Uh, you know, why it's there, which can often be, as I said, to do with some kind of negativity, um, not really wanting to be here. It can be a way of blanking out. You're bored, you're resistant to something that's happening and just don't want to be bothered with it. So you just clunk, <laughs> close down. Um, and hearing you saying that you're trying to do as little, with as little sleep as possible, I mean, that's something that everybody recommends, Ajahn Chah, the Buddha, to do as little experiment to, to see how much sleep you actually need. Uh, but there are times when you're actually physically exhausted and you need to sleep. So I often think about the Buddha's list of um, antidotes to drowsiness. And I don't know if I'm going to get them all, but there are different things that, that I've tried and some of them are more effective than others. Uh, make sure you're not in, make sure you've got some fresh air. So don't sit in a kind of cozy, stuffy little room. Um, if you're really sleepy, wash your face with cold water. Pull your earlobes. Um, <laughs> yes, just, that's right, that's, that's very helpful as well, just to stimulate, to, to bring a sense of aliveness, alertness into the system. Um, uh, putting a lot of attention into the posture, and as I said before, you know, use, focusing on the in-breath as to rouse energy, to bring energy into the system. Um, also, the Buddha recommended like using the perception of light. So either looking at a light or sitting with your eyes wide open uh, in, when, when, where it's light or focusing on a candle um, or using an internal image, which some people find helpful, just imagining very bright light. So with your eyes closed, just you know, creating a visual field that is full of light, that can also be helpful. Um, the Buddha said, well, there were two things he said as a last resort, and I'm not quite sure in which order. One of them was, sit on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried that. It's, um, I can't meditate. I'm too scared. You know? I know. I... <laughs> I I, I contemplate that too, and I, 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 I don't have the nerve. I, I'm, I'm not convinced that it'll work. <laughs> a, a, an interesting equivalent to that, though, something more practical perhaps, is to, to stand up. So when I teach now, I often invite people, if they are feeling very drowsy, to stand up, because you're less likely to fall asleep standing up. Um, 
and even just to stand up for a few minutes can bring energy into the system. It can just sort of move the energy around. So that can be very good because sometimes if you're sitting for long periods of time, somebody a few days ago spoke about, you know, you can get into a very pleasant sort of peaceful and sort of vaguely sort of dozy, dreamy state. And you, you really don't want to do anything actually because it's so nice. Um, and then you realize that your head is almost on the floor. So it might be a good idea to do something. So at that point, just to stand up can be good. Um, and then the final thing is, well, just go and have a good rest. Uh, yeah, thanks for, for that. Um, I was just hoping to uh, ask on the end there, um, if from your practice um, over uh, you know more time than, than I've had, I was wondering if the kind of um, the ability to kind of withstand drowsiness's effect and maybe some kind of insight into drowsiness isn't as realistic as the mind kind of uh, makes it out to be is that something what you felt what you found at all i'm getting a wee bit better at it mm. after almost 40 years <laughs> um i find the best thing for me is actually just sitting with the eyes wide open you know, if, if i'm if i'm really sleepy and putting effort into the posture and standing up these are things that help me um, and also just acknowledging if the, I mean, nowadays it's less so, but I used to have a lot of negativity, a lot of resistance, which I think was the cause of a lot of, a lot of it. Um, uh, so, you know, allow, allowing things into consciousness rather than repressing. And I was very good at repressing anger because I was brought up to be a good, kind, calm, placid, person everybody would say how placid she is but little did they know that there was a real raging furnace underneath a volcano uh, which i only really discovered when i came into monastic life and uh, actually coming to terms with that the kind of rage which is the kind of rage you see in babies you know they they can yell and scream without any embarrassment whatsoever but um for adults it's it's not you know, it's not really, especially in Britain, it's not acceptable behavior. <laughs> Maybe in Italy you can get away with it. <laughs> British people are very well behaved. So we get very good at repressing. And so it, that, that is, that's, that's not very helpful, actually. So a lot of our practice is actually allowing things into consciousness. You know, even things that seem totally unacceptable. You know, I'm not that sort of person. I, you know... And, but but actually to 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 allow these things into consciousness and to, seeing it all as as anicca and anatta can be helpful. So you're not you're not identifying with it. You're just saying, okay, so there's this volcano in here <laughs> doing its thing. Um, it's not. It's I don't have to identify with it. I don't have to think that I'm an angry person. But it can be scary. I used to have a sort of when I was an Andy Gary car. I used to worry that I might actually blow up the whole world. <laughs> with my rage, you know, it was that powerful. Um, so actually acknowledging that can be very, very helpful in liberating a lot of energy uh, for practice. And because it does take a, a lot to keep it down, to keep it under control. And often just going to sleep is, is the sort of safest uh, strategy. But it doesn't help mindfulness. It doesn't help brightness, alertness. It doesn't help understanding. It doesn't really help anything very much.
So um, it's good to, to try to um, find strategies for working with it. But don't hate it and don't hate yourself because that's just another kind of negativity to be really critical of yourself. I, mean, I, I, I know about that too. Just sort of thinking, oh, I'm a terrible person, hopeless meditation, I'll never be any good. What would people say if they knew what my mind was like? All this stuff. And um, that's, um, that takes away your energy as well. So find ways to reassure yourself, to encourage yourself, um, and to keep interested, you know, keep curious about it. Because uh, we just have this mind and body. This is what we have to learn from. This is what's gonna, how we're going to be liberated through understanding it, not through kind of pushing things down and making everything the way we think it should be if we were a good meditator or a good disciple of the Buddha. You know, good disciples of the Buddha are those who are fearless and willing to investigate their experience. So um, those are the kind of things I would like to say, and I hope that's helpful. Thanks, Ijaan. Afternoon, Ajahn. Um, we've, we've heard um, a lot this week about, especially from Bor Sumedho, about, uh, about grasping and about letting go. I was wondering if you could offer some practical advice on recognizing grasping in the mind, especially in maybe some its more subtle forms. Sometimes when the mind really grabs hold, it's easy, to, easy enough to see. But sort of sometimes it seems like it's not seen. And then, and then also maybe some advice on, on cultivating a mind that, that lets go. I think being being curious is a very helpful um, thing. You know, having an, an attitude of interest. In fact, the in the enlightenment factors, Dhamma Vichaya, sort of uh, investigation of dhammas, is is a very important aspect of practice. Being willing to look, to take an interest, to acknowledge what's going on. And sometimes with grasping, as you say, it can be very subtle. We don't really realize it's happening. But if we stay attentive um, and just have a, a kind of open kind of curiosity, uh, the chances are that sooner or later we'll, we'll, we'll notice what's happening, we'll recognize it. Um, it may be a, a kind of tension in the body, a bodily tension. It may be a, a kind of feeling of, oh, no, I don't want that to happen, or how come she got it and I didn't? You know, it, it, it could be anything, any kind of dukkha, actually, basically. If there's, if there's any kind of suffering or struggle or dukkha, that's a sure sign that there's grasping. So as far as letting go, um, sometimes we actually just have to grasp for quite a while and feel the discomfort of it um, until there's a kind of readiness to let go. <laughs> Um, you know, we can think, I, I really should let go, I must let go, I've got to let go of this. Um, and it's only when we, I think it was Ajahn Sajito who was saying, eventually you just get tired <laughs> of holding on. And, just, ah. and, and there's, there's a letting go. Um, again, investigating curiosity and um, a kind of playfulness and willingness to experiment with different strategies. I mean, the Buddha did give teachings on, um, you know, quite specific strategies for, for letting go of um, uh, distracting thoughts. There's a, there's a wonderful sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya that you might like to look into. I think it's number 20, um, the Vitaka Santana Sutta, which gives 
different methods um, of, of, of letting go of, of, of difficult things. Um, and I could sort of give a whole discourse on that, but I think perhaps just encouraging an experimentation, um, listening to lots of Dharma teachings and hearing what other people have found helpful, but then, you know, experimenting. Um, and enjoy, enjoying, enjoying the feeling of actually when you have let go and to see that uh, it's really worth doing. You know, sometimes we don't want to. We really don't want to. You know, in, in, in monastic life, particularly, as Ajahn Suchita was saying yesterday, you know, sometimes you're just in situations where your back is against the wall and you think, I can't stand it, I'm not going to, I refuse, I, 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 I can't bear it. <laughs> and then you realize that actually all there is to do is to just bear it. And it's, it's such a relief. Like we have this thing of, you know, bowing together, you know, bowing at the same time. And it was decades ago, somebody... Um, pulled me up on this because I was deliberately buying a little bit out of time as a way of asserting my independence and being a little bit different. <laughs> and uh, one of the nuns, it was a very public situation where I deliberately bowed out of time and I, was, I, I had some feedback about it. <laughs> and so the next day at mealtime, we were, we, were, we were waiting to, to get up to go for the meal and I, you know, I knew I had a choice, either to bow out of time or let go and bow in time. And I actually didn't know until the time to bow came what I would do, which option I would choose. And uh, I actually bowed with everybody else. And it was such a relief. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's extraordinary why we cling on to these things, but... It's, it's ignorance that's desperate, and it's the ego, desperate to kind of cling on to some sense of identity, some sense of selfhood, not realizing how much it hurts. So, very interesting question, and um, I hope that helps as a, some kind of response. Thank you. Could you just mention the name of the sutta you mentioned? I think it's called the Vitaka Santana Sutta, and I'm sure somebody can correct me about that. And it's in the Majimini either I think it's number 20. And it's just five ways of dealing with distracting thoughts. Wonderful, thank you. <laughs> yes? Yes? Actually, I think it isn't on. No, there might be a thing at the bottom. I wonder if you could just say uh, a few words about the problem of losing mindfulness around the meal here. Um, there seems, seems to be two factors, as, as far as I'm concerned, that, that affect that. One's the, the sumptuous array of food. Um, and, and then there's the, the queue. <laughs> and... Uh, kind of thinking, oh, if I'm back in the queue, I'm going to miss out on all the the good stuff. And also, when you're in the queue, there are loads of people behind you, so you feel you have to choose quickly, which doesn't enable you to make um, <laughs> proper choices. <laughs> so I end up taking more than I really need. And I don't like waste, so I made a, 
this is probably just me, but I made a determination that I had to eat everything that I put on my plate. <laughs> and then you feel sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you could say a few words about, about losing loss of mindfulness around the mealtime. It, it's a very um, difficult area, actually. Um, and people are often afraid that they're you know, really greedy and that, that they're just going to go berserk and stuff themselves. Um, and I think one of the things that we forget is that these bodies, they get very hungry, especially when you just have one time in the day, you know, when you really have a big meal. There is breakfast, but then the main meal. So there's a huge amount of kind of investment in that and a huge amount of... It's, it's quite... I mean, I think if you see the body as being like an animal body that um, needs to eat to survive um, and to see that a lot of this is a, is a kind of animal fear that you're not going to get enough, that, I find, can bring more of a, a compassionate attitude towards yourself because we can be very idealistic about these things. I must be restrained. I mustn't eat too much. I mustn't take more than my share. I must be quick because of the people behind me. You know, we put a lot of pressures onto ourselves. Whereas if we went more with an attitude of, well, you know, this poor thing is it's, it's hungry and it's frightened. It's not going to get enough. Um, just, you know, like, like to approach it with an attitude of gentleness and kindness towards yourself. That actually supports mindfulness. I mean, sometimes we think, that if we're too gentle and kind, you know, that there are no limits to what we'll do. But actually, it supports mindfulness. Um, it supports a sense of inner ease and well-being, which can enable us to be much more um, sensible around food. It's interesting, in, in monastic life, one of the things I've found is that during retreat time, I can be much more sensible around food than um, at other times. Um, because the mind is is calm, um, I'm not um, stimulated by a lot of sort of conversation and 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 talking. Um, I haven't got a lot of things on my mind that I need to do or sort out a lot of duties and responsibilities. I'm not distracted in any way. Um, but in a situation like here, where there's a lot of people coming together and having to queue up and wait, um, it is difficult. So using whatever strategy you can to establish and maintain mindfulness, always with this attitude of kindness and supporting well-being in yourself. So um, I, I always like to do standing meditation. Like whenever I teach a retreat, we have standing meditation after the meal, actually, usually, because that's a time that people are sleepy. Because standing can support presence when you're waiting. Usually when we're standing, we're waiting for something, waiting for a bus or waiting for in the meal queue. So just bringing awareness to the body standing as, as you wait, uh, bringing awareness to the breath as you wait. Using some kind of gentle mantra can also be helpful. You know, and it doesn't have to be a particularly religious one. I mean, it can just be, it's all right. And you can use your name. I don't know what your name is, but use your name. Chandasiri, it's all right. Chandasiri, you are going to get enough to eat today. <laughs> yeah. And it's okay not to get a Kit Kat bar or whatever your favorite sweet is. It's okay. You know, and for all of you, you, you know, you can go home and you can go and buy yourself anything that you don't actually 
you miss out on at the meal today. Uh, so it's not such a big deal. Um, so these are these are some some suggestions, um, but it is it's not easy. You know, sometimes you know there can be such a kind of tension around it that you think you're just going to. Uh, I mean, as <laughs> funny funny stories about monastics, you know, just looking into the arms bowl and just imagining you're just going to dive right into the whole bowl and <laughs> when when the time comes. But uh, yeah, just patience, kindness. Uh, you can never have enough patience in this life, I tell you. And in fact, it's one of the things that the Buddha pointed to as being like the foremost of austerities is patience. So everybody here has had plenty of opportunity to practice patience over this week. So this is something to celebrate. Um, I've got two questions, if that's okay. Um, <clears throat> the first one is around... Um, Ajahn Sachido was talking last night around um, trauma, and I found in, in practice with strong emotions that would, would come up, there is, you know, there, there's a space, you have the space before becoming or the identific identification, but I find with maybe like traumatic, past traumatic events, it, there isn't that, that space isn't there, that it's kind of just, you're in it before you kind of recognize it. Um, and I suppose I'm just wondering, is just with, with more practice and maybe less identification, you can get to the space where, where you, know, you have the space before the becoming? Yeah, practice helps. So just cultivating meditation on a regular basis, you know, try to have a, a daily practice. doesn't have to be incredibly long, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, however much you can spare, just to cultivate the habit of mindfulness, and then to carry that as far as possible into your everyday life. Um, this, this can support a kind of presence when you're in the midst of some kind of really um, difficult mind stuff. Um, if you find that you're in it before you've had a, you know, before the gap, then um, investigate it as best you can. Um, I always find the body is very helpful. So noticing what's happening in the body. And as far as possible, as, again, using the out-breath, as I said before, just to, to calm as far as possible, to settle as far as possible. Um, it depends very much the situation you're in when it arises. I'm imagining that um, walking meditation can also be very helpful as a way of just ground, grounding that, that energy taking you out of your head where the thinking happens, just into the body and um, into the present moment. Because it's... Uh, and, and just acknowledging that sometimes these things have a charge in the body that is not going to disappear straight away. So this is where patience and um, endurance and persistence is helpful. Just being able to, to, keep, to keep with it. Um, and... Using, as I was saying before, just, you know, um, ways of reassuring yourself. You just, it sounds crazy, but just talking to yourself, you know, it's all right, you know, this is now, that was then. And, and just recollecting what the situation is that you're in now, that, um, you know, there's nothing to fear, there's no danger. Um, and just acknowledging it 
when we do have a very severe trauma, it's like an inner kind of wounding that, that takes time to heal. So creating a, a kind of healing, healing space in consciousness um, can be what's helpful, what's required. And just not asking too much of yourself when you're going through a, a difficult time like that. Um, you know, I find with things like, like bereavement or, you know, when, when, when there is um, inner disturbance, to, to try to, you know, do all the things that we usually do is sometimes asking too much. So to, you know, it, it, try to treat the, the inner wounding in the same way that you would treat um, a physical wound or sickness um, with, with, with that same degree of care and patience and spaciousness. Um, and, and just quickly, just something from what um, Ajahn Amaro was um, saying in the reflection this morning. Um, he was kind of talking about um, you know, over-identification with different uh, parts of identity. Um, and he mentioned, he mentioned gender, and it made me made me think around myself and probably I can see that an over-identification with gender, it brings me suffering, um, but I also, in some ways, it brings me strength to kind of be in the world as it is. So I have a kind of an aversion to, to, let, it, to let it go. Um, so I'm just wondering around, again, is it just uh, more practice and more kind of understanding of anatta and not self that, that will kind of bring that readiness to kind of let that go? <laughs> this is a big question. <laughs> uh, what I think is helpful is to understand that there's two levels of reality uh, that the Buddha spoke about, that all the teachers speak about. There's, there's ultimate reality, where actually none of us are really human beings or anything. You know, we're all just presence. Um, and um, this is... Uh, When, when we're in tune with that, gender, position in society, age, social position, uh, relationships, they're all, they don't have any meaning. It's not something that is relevant. However, on the conventional level, um, our gender is extremely relevant. And, um, you know, in a situation like, like here, where um, we're living in a monastic community, where uh, monks and nuns practice celibacy, and same with all of you when you're staying here. Um, it can, it can, um, one's, one's awareness of gender is, is somehow intensified. Um, and so it's not something that uh, we ignore or think of as being not relevant, uh, I would say. Um, I could talk a lot more about that, but maybe is, does that kind of help clear up the issue for you, or would you like me to go on? <laughs> well, yeah, I could, I could probably listen to you talk about it for half an hour, but <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that that, that helps. Okay, okay. So it's it's the two realities, and and to realise that there is this conventional reality, which is what we're all living in, where you know there are men, there are women, and a whole range of things in between nowadays. And um, we do have a position in society, we're sons or we're daughters, 
we have conventional relationships. Uh, we have different nationalities, which is another very significant convention, although ultimately, of course, it totally doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't figure. But um, there, there are cultural identities. These, these things are all relevant on this reality that we're living in. But in our practice, when we're totally uh, present um, in meditation, uh, it, it seems totally, um, it doesn't seem relevant at all. Like, I, I don't think of myself as Sister Chandasiri when I'm in meditation. It's just, you know, it's something that, that, that becomes real when it's, when it's appropriate. It, 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 um, but at other times, it's, it's not something I think about all the time. Or the fact that I'm a nun or, or any. Thank you. Good afternoon, Ajahn. Uh, yes. I have a very uninteresting problem. I sit very excitedly for meditation, fully awake, as I think. But nothing comes to my mind. It blanks out. No thoughts, no emotions. And I'm waiting, like in the game of whack-a-mole, with a little hammer in my back, in my hand. If some thought or emotion comes, I can deal with it. But nothing comes up. And I get bored by that, and I go to sleep. What should I do about it? You can um, experiment with um, investigation, asking questions. Um, is one thing you can do. You know, who's sitting here? What's sitting here? Um, how do I know that I'm sitting here? Um, where does thought come from? What is thought? So you're actually introducing thought as a, um, a tool for investigation. Um, the other thing that you can do is in your daily life, I'm imagining that probably things, there are things that do arise. And so take an interest in, in that as well. So don't see your meditation as being the only time that you pay attention to what's happening in the mind, but try to keep that focus in your daily life so that, um, that when, when, when emotions do arise, which I'm imagining they will at certain times, uh, you can, you're with, with them, uh, with, with mindfulness and presence. Um, so you make the whole of your life like a meditation. But... The other thing to do when your mind is quiet like that is just to enjoy it. Um, and if it is really boring, then just try sitting with the eyes wide open. So you keep the mind bright in that way. These are some, a few suggestions. So the emotions or the thoughts must come? doesn't matter what? The emotions and thoughts must come. Um, I'm imagine, I'd be very surprised if you don't have any thoughts or emotions in your daily life. But maybe, maybe you don't. But it may be a case of just that you've developed a, a great skillfulness in, in not noticing them. Because sometimes emotions and some of our thoughts are very embarrassing. We don't really... Uh, they're very and often quite inconvenient. So... 
I think sometimes people can can kind of override them. Um, and uh, so I would encourage you to to be curious about this. You know, you, uh, you're a human being. You're living on the planet. You're in relation with other human beings. There must be times when you get frustrated or irritated or um, upset with the things that happen around you. Or well, there is a possibility that I'm already half enlightened. That's that, that, that's that's the other possibility. <laughs> I hope you are. <laughs> uh, there was another question over here. Pink, yes. Yes. Good afternoon, Arjun. Um, for those of us who have an increasing interest in joining the monastic life, in particular for women, um, what matters would you recommend to consider, and both in terms of matters for the heart, as in maybe the intention, wise and practical, the where and the how and the what. One thing in, in our particular community at the moment, we have an age limit. So I don't think you are over 50, but if you're over 50, then um, it will be necessary to find some other place to practice as if you wanted to be a nun. Um, or to find um, a way of being here that doesn't involve uh, being a Silidara. So you know, there are manager positions, you can live a monastic life as a lay manager. Um, if uh, you really are serious in your interest to become a nun, then the best thing is to stay here for a bit and get a taste of monastic life. Um, you know, see what it's like, see if it's really uh, what, what you want to do. Um, other things to consider are the fact that it, um, the encouragement is to make sure that you have no debts. So if you've got a, a debt, it's good to have that paid off before um, entering the order. Um, also, no dependents. So if you have children, um, either wait till they're grown up and no longer need you, um, make sure that they're properly cared for by somebody else. If 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 um, uh, this is what you really want to do, um, then uh, you have to be reasonably um, emotionally stable and physically um, reasonably healthy. Not too many health issues. Able to keep the eight precepts. So to manage without supper. Uh, and these are things that you, you, know, you can try out if you come and stay in the monastery. Um, and then to talk to one of the nuns and let them know that you're interested. And what usually people say at first, you know, if you say, well, I really want to be a nun, they say, oh yeah, okay, I'll come and stay for a bit. Uh, we don't immediately say, oh yes, yes, fantastic, great. <laughs> come and stay for a bit, come and stay again, yeah, okay. And, um, and if it's clear that you're really interested, then um, you can kind of write a formal letter and uh, it can be taken step by step. Um, so that's about entering this particular community. Uh, there are other places that you can 
be ordained. Um, not very many for women, sadly, um, unless you go to like Sri Lanka or Thailand. Uh, there are more situations there. And I think within the Mahayana traditions also there are more opportunities in, say, um, Korea and Taiwan. Um, but um, within the Theravada, it's, it's fairly limited. But it um, doesn't mean it's impossible. And the most important thing to say, it doesn't mean that you can't practice. So if you are over 50, if you do have people who are dependent on you, if you do have a huge debt that you're trying to pay off, if you can't live in a monastery, then make your home a monastery. Make your, um, your lay life into a monastic life. doesn't mean that you shave your head and put on robes like this, but it means looking at ways of simplifying your life, looking at ways of introducing a kind of monastic uh, element. You know, sort of, uh, I mean, the things about monastic life is that there's a, a routine of meditation, morning and evening, uh, pujas. Uh, you have a shrine where you live. So you, you, know, you get, when you wake up in the morning, you bow to your shrine. Uh, you recollect the precepts. You recollect the Buddha Dhamma Sangha each day. Um, you consider the ways that you use your time. You consider the friends that you choose. Uh, one of the blessings, the first of the blessings that uh, in, in the discourse on the greatest blessing is you know, uh, association with the wise. So you consider, you know, who do you want to, to, to choose to be around? You choose people who have a similar aspiration and interest. Come to the monastery when you can. So um, monastic life is perfect for, for many people. And I always uh, delight in people being able to join the community. But if for any reason it's not possible, um, it doesn't, as I said, mean that you can't practice. I always think it's much better to be um, a joyful, practicing layperson than a miserable monk or nun. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not suitable for everybody. And um, so... Just, just to consider ways of of making your your lay practice um, as focused on liberation as as possible, and um, being realis being realistic in your aspiration in your aditana. So, um, you know, if you have got a nine to five job, not expecting to you know practice long hours of meditation each day, um, you know, you're not going to have so much time, so much energy, but in your, in your, throughout the day, uh, using whatever you can to establish mindfulness. You know, so, waiting for a phone call, you know, just be with the breath. In the middle of a difficult conversation, just breathe out and just feel your shoulders, your face relaxing, loosening your grip on the telephone. <laughs> uh, if you're in the traffic, just loosening your grip on the steering wheel, seeing if you can just actually bring awareness to the body rather than be stuck up here frustrated and furious and anxious and worried about missing your appointment. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. So just breathe out. Relax. So it demands, like in, in practice in lay life, demands um, even more uh, creativity and skill than monastic practice because you're translating the monastic 
paradigm into a, a different setting, into your own setting. But it can be done. Um, so I'd, these are some reflections that I hope help to answer your question, and maybe the questions of others here. Thank you. Uh, hello, sister, over here. Um, we've all enjoyed uh, this experience of the last few days living in the fourfold assembly. I wonder if you could just give some reflections on, on that. The fourfold assembly. Thank you. It's a nice question. And um, basically, when uh, uh, the Buddha was alive, he spoke about uh, the significance of the fourfold assembly. Uh, the fourfold assembly in those days was the, the bhikkhu sangha, the bhikkhuni sangha, the uh, lay men and the lay women. Um, and each group is practicing to liberate the heart. And each group has slightly different role in relation to each other. So... Um, One of the ways I heard it described in the very early days was the the um, the, the role of the, the lay people uh, that their practice apart from the meditation was to make sure that the uh, gone forth people had what they needed to survive to provide the four requisites um, and uh, that and which of course is an opportunity to develop generosity and um, and for the um, ordained community, the monks and nuns, um, to um, be willing to uh, offer what they can of their um, experience of practice to, to share Dhamma, to, to, to um, uh, share their experience of, of, of practice, and to make themselves available to, to receive from the lay community. Um, so there's, that's a very kind of simple way of putting it. Um, but as I see it, my experience in, in Britain is that actually it's, it's a much more subtle kind of interdependency <clears throat> because <clears throat> Personally, I feel inspired and encouraged uh, by the lay, lay people, lay community. Um, and um, just in the same way that I'm imagining that some of the lay people find encouragement through um, being around the monastics. I remember when I was a, a lay person on the first retreat I did, I remember Ajahn Sumedho was leading the retreat. And he was sitting in the middle, and he was a very, very big, very significant presence. And I thought he was absolutely wonderful. I still think he's absolutely wonderful. And uh, his teaching was absolutely wonderful. And But I would look at him, and I'd think, but I could never do that. No way. And then uh, one day, he had each of the junior monks who were sitting with him. Each of them were invited to give a talk. And uh, so I, they kind of came more into my focus, and I began to think, well, 
they're, 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 they were a little bit more ordinary. They were less extraordinary. <laughs> and I thought, well, if they can do it, maybe I can do it. And uh, that was a very helpful little reflection for me. It actually gave me faith that, that maybe I could uh, practice in this way. Um, <clears throat> There's an awful lot more that I would like to say, but I can't quite find it. But <laughs> that's 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 a little bit of of how I see it works. Um, there's also the aspect that um, another way that we benefit from um, our role as arms mendicants is that um, if we're not practicing correctly and with integrity and sincerity, um, it would be very difficult to stand there with our arms bowled and receive the offerings that we receive, to receive the kind of privilege and the offerings. Um, so what that means is that it's a real incentive to us as, as nuns and monks to, to really uh, live the life with as, as much integrity as possible, to really practice um, as best we can according to the Buddha's teaching, um, which is not always um, uh, like for me, I, I don't always feel my practice is very inspiring, like a lot of it is actually just bearing with really difficult mind states um, but being willing to do that, because then we become a, an expert uh, on difficult mind states. Uh, and when you've really studied something, then you have something of value to contribute. So I was always touched when uh, Ajahn Sumedha would talk about Ajahn Chah, you know, really pushing the, the, the very, very junior people when they were newly come, barely able to string two words of Thai together, He'd have them sit up on the seat and, and give a Dhamma talk in Thai. And something that used to happen in this community um, a long time ago was that he would also ask very junior people in the community to share their experience, say if we'd been on, had a time of retreat together, to share their, their experience of practice. And it was interesting because even if what they had to say was very, very simple, if it was something that they'd really experienced and worked with in their own practice, it had a kind of very delicious taste. It was much more delicious than a very beautifully prepared talk. So I think one of the things that the monastics can do is actually they can, they can practice with all of the kind of really difficult, grubby little mind states and, and um, use that as an encouragement for, for, for people to, to really investigate everything you know, bring the whole lot into into the light, and that's what enlightenment means: bringing it all into the light. And some of our experience as human beings is sublime. Uh, some of it's kind of middling, and some of it's downright grubby, <laughs> and and confusing, and difficult, and embarrassing. Um, but when we're really willing to kind of delve in there and look at it and bring it into the light and let go then it's not, it's not a problem because we say it's not me. This is just part of the human predicament that I've studied and that I know about. I mean, Ajahn Sadita's talk last night was fantastic, but the reason it was fantastic was because it was stuff that he knew about. 
you know, it wasn't just a theoretical thing plucked out of some scripture somewhere. I mean, those those can be very inspiring, but it was the stuff of his practice. So this is kind of uh, one of the things that uh, can, can come out of um, a situation where we have a large number of monastics and um, we couldn't exist without a large number of lay people. And I think everybody benefits. Um, I'm, I'm always really amazed um, or awestruck at the, at the brilliance of, of um, this <coughs> kind of form that was devised during the lifetime of the Buddha, that evolved during the lifetime of the Buddha. Because I don't imagine that he thought it out when he started off, it's going to be like this. But each time a situation arose, um, it would be adjusted. And that's how the rules evolved and, and the various procedures evolved. And the relationship uh, developed. So I, I'm very, very grateful that we're able to live like this. Um, and um, it's actually very, extremely unusual uh, in the world, actually, for there to be um, a lay and a monastic community living with this kind of intimacy and um, sharing. So um, it, it seems like a very precious uh, resource that we all have. Um, Thank you for the question. I hope that was helpful. I, I regret to announce that it's now one minute to half past five. So if there was a one-word a one question with a one-word answer, we could manage. But if there isn't, I think we might need to draw this to a close. One, okay. One more. Um, it, can you hear me? Yeah. I can it's, hear you. It's not a one-word question, but I just wanted to ask you um, if you could just... Um, talk a little bit about um, how you worked with um, rage um, and you talked about having a volcano inside and, and, uh, and how you worked with that and how you practiced with that and um, do you still have the volcano inside? No. <laughs> it arises and the thing that's most helpful is a commitment to harmlessness. The presets are fundamental because they're the container within which whatever it is can arise and you can just watch it burning because having lashed out having been mean and seen the result of that I don't want to hurt anybody or anything I really don't so when there's rage there I'm very careful with it I treat that energy with a lot of respect um, and I allow it. It, it, it. it flares up. And then if you don't feed it with thinking, and if, if you really want to keep it going, then think. <laughs> Brilliant way of keeping it going. Don't, don't do that. Just experience the raw energy. Notice it arising, flaring up. It has its beauty, its marvel. And then just allow it to, to burn down. You can also direct it into some kind of purposeful activity. If you come up to Milntum in Scotland, I'll give you some wood to chop. <laughs> so, thank you. That's a very important question. So.